brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hey everybody, welcome to another BA Scout Series podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. Got another great show for you today. We're pleased to be joined by Cubs Area Scout Tom Myers. Tom is the Area Scout for the northern half of Southern California for the Cubs. He had his first player that he signed reach the major leagues this year in Corey Abbott. Abbott was a second round pick out of Loyola Marymount back in 2017. We're pleased to have Tom on to discuss the process of signing Corey and also take us through his journey into scouting. He has a really, really interesting history. He pitched at UC Santa Barbara, was drafted in 1991 by the A's, pitched five and a half seasons in the minor leagues. After that, went over to Europe and served as a player coach in the Dutch Professional League out in Holland, returned back stateside and took coaching position at UCSB, was a college coach for the Gauchos, as well as at Santa Clara for a stint, went back to UC Santa Barbara, uh, was really known as one of the best pitching coaches in the game, and also was a manager in the Cape Cod League, and a really, really decorated coach. And then he went into scouting in 2011. He joined the Cubs scouting staff and has become a very prominent member of uh, their scouting group. A couple of guys he's recommended have been drafted very highly in recent years, Chase Strumpf, Cole Roederer, and of course, Corey Abbott. Tom is kind enough to join us from his home in Santa Inez, California today. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, first and foremost, just what was the emotion like for you when Corey Abbott got the call this year and you got the first big leaguer that you had signed as a scout? Uh, you know, it's exciting. It's uh, a bit nerve-wracking because, uh, you know, once you sign a player, um, you know, you're invested from their first date to their last day of being a professional. So I, I had some uh, pregame jitters and, and, of course, just pulling for him and hoping that he would fare well and uh, take on that new experience of being a major leaguer the best he possibly could. Absolutely. I want to dive into the process of signing him. But first, I want to ask you a little bit about yourself and your background. You were a college coach for a long time. You were at UC Santa Barbara from 98 to 2001, went over to Santa Clara for a stint, went back to UC Santa Barbara, and then joined the Cubs as a scout in 2011. We see that path a fair amount, college coaches becoming scouts and vice versa, scouts becoming college coaches. How did you kind of get on this career path first as a coach and then ultimately becoming a scout? Well, I've been very fortunate, Kyle, to be in baseball as long as I have. Uh, I've had great mentors and people have helped guide me uh, with my career. But, you know, being able to play collegiately at the Division One level, getting drafted by the Oakland A's and playing you know, five and a half years in the minor leagues, having a chance to be a player coach in Europe, following my 
a brief minor league stint, uh, got me into the coaching ranks. And as it turned out, my first job was in 1998, getting hired by Bob Bronsima, who was the head coach at the time. But when I played as a gaucho, uh, he was the assistant coach. So I had a bond and a friendship. And he was looking for a pitching coach at the time. And uh, the main reason for my hire was to keep a player by the name of Barry Zito in the program. And Barry was a freshman who had a tremendous year. He was going into his sophomore year and his dad was looking for somebody who had had professional background uh, as a player and could give his son some teaching at an advanced level. So I uh, took the job and turned out Barry left the program and went on to do great things and the rest is history. But that helped me uh, get my foot in the ground on the coaching side. And then uh, I, I was a manager, head coach on the Cape, which increased my profile and uh, my network of knowing people in the game. And then when my time expired at UC Santa Barbara in 2011, I was able to interview with the Chicago Cubs organization. And at the time, the scouting director, Tim Wilkin, was the one who uh, offered me my first contract as a scout. How big of a transition was it? Again, you'd been a player, you'd been a coach for a long time. Anytime you change jobs, there's definitely a transition period. But what was that like for you going from one career really to another? It was a, it was a challenge and um, a great educational process because, you know, college coaches are involved in a, a scouting process, but it's not the same as being part of a professional organization or working for the major league label. So things got more finite. Um, there's a definite different process involved, a much more structure, and it's something that uh, you're doing 24-7. And college coaches do, uh, do scout and recruit 24-7, but it's still a different process. So my first couple of years were definitely a learning. There was a learning curve involved, but fortunately I had a background as a player background as a coach, which allowed me to jump some hurdles, I guess, and, and improve my learning curve along the way. You mentioned different process. What is the biggest difference in the process evaluating players as a college coach versus a scout? Well, you know, a college coach is looking for somebody that can step in and help them win right away. And as we see now, the game has become more money driven, there's higher salaries, there's more pressure to win than when I, there was pressure to win when I was a college coach, but the game is more scrutinized and it's a great thing because it's more uh, nationally recognized in all media outlets. So with that being said, college coaches are looking for that quick fix right now, guys to step in and play right away. They're dealing with a smaller roster size. Uh, as a scout, you're drafting for the future. You're bringing in kids that are going to go through a development process of three to five years. Um, and the long term is for them to play in Wrigley Field and help the major league organization win. But the structure of winning and losing is a little bit different at the early stages. College coaches need to win now so they can keep their jobs. You joined the Cubs as a scout. You mentioned that there was a learning curve there. What was the biggest adjustment you had to make? Was it just that timeline kind of making that adjustment mentally and how you evaluated players? What were some of the biggest challenges? Well, you're always scouting tools, as we know, um, and you have to have a, uh, I don't know, a, a kind of a projection base where you're looking at this kid down the road, especially with high school guys. And then uh, again, can, can these guys develop over time? 
uh, a lot more finite uh, in the in the respect of doing background work and learning about the kid in, in in and out how what makes him tick about his family sometimes you don't have that process as a college coach you only get to see them once or twice you have to pull the trigger uh, with us we try to uncover every stone to find out if we're going to make a financial investment and that's the biggest thing too is the money involved you know scholarships are expensive and they cost schools a lot of money but uh, major league teams are making million dollar decisions on a lot of players so uh, you have to scale things differently prioritize and be very well organized as a scout all the time your region, you cover the northern half of Southern California, and that's a lot of ground to cover. You're in the Santa Barbara area, but you have to go all the way up to San Luis Obispo, all the way down to the southern tip of Los Angeles County. You mentioned that organization and just covering such a wide swath. There's a ton of talent in the area, which obviously makes it enjoyable, but how is that stepping right away into an area that both has a lot of talent and has a lot of region to cover? Well, knock on wood, I had been in this general area for... 11 years or so. So uh, the network that I created as a college coach has helped me have success and uh, helped improve my process as a area scout. You know, those phone calls were easier to make. The communication was fluid when I stepped into the scouting world. And yeah, it's a vast area. It's one of the best in the country. I feel uh, very uh, privileged to be working for the Cubs in this general area. I mean, there's many major leaguers in my 10 years time that have, uh, I've had a chance to evaluate for the Chicago Cubs. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think my successes and some of my failures, hopefully there's only been, uh, there hasn't been very many, has been because of my network and ability to communicate with coaches and people in my general area. You mentioned joining the Cubs and you joined them at a time as they were on the rise. And one of the things that you got to experience was being a part of a World Series winning organization. You got a World Series ring even before you had your first big leaguer. What was that like winning a World Series ring? Well, joining the Cubs, uh, I, would, I was always familiar with the label since I was a, a young boy watching them on cable TV. And then uh, getting to be a part of their organization and seeing, you know, how the infrastructure works. Uh, we were, when I got hired, we had a new owner, the Ricketts family, and they've been fantastic. They've allowed everything and anything possible for us to do our jobs at a high level since I've been a part of the organization. And uh, we, when I got hired, we, we were at the bottom. So I got to be a part of an organization was at ground zero. Theo Epstein came in. Uh, from Boston with his success and brought in his team of scouts uh, and front office uh, administrators. And so he basically laid out a plan and we followed it. We followed those marching orders. So it was exciting, exhilarating to see how he laid out this plan. We worked as hard as we could. And then within a you know five, six year time frame, we were playing in a World Series and we were able to win. So I feel very fortunate to see both ends where you have to put in all the hard work and then you get that pot of gold at the end of the day. And it's, it's hard to do. It took the organization a hundred years. And I, again, I feel very fortunate to be a part of that. Were you able to attend any of the world series games or were you watching from afar at home? You know, they brought us in 
for two games. We were in Chicago. They had a big gala. Major League Baseball uh, celebrated the World Series in Chicago. Uh, the organization and Theo Epstein did a great job to make sure that all of the scouts, pro and amateur, all the player development coaches were involved. Uh, it was a fantastic experience, something I will never forget. And my young daughter was able to attend and something she will never forget. But uh, yeah, it was first class all the way. We didn't get to see our team win. We were uh, sent home for the finale and, you know, it was nerve wracking sitting in my uh, living room watching it on the TV. But uh, we were able to celebrate and uh, be a part of the entire event. Absolutely. So where do you keep your World Series ring? I'm keeping it stowed away. So it's my daughter's down the road. Uh, I hope uh, to scout for uh, many years longer and get another chance. But that will be hers uh, down the road. That's awesome. One thing, in addition to scouting, you are very, very active. You're often in the dugout. You coach a lot of the area code games teams. Uh, there have been some showcases out here in Southern California where you're in uniform, you're in the dugout, you're throwing BP. How much do you enjoy that aspect of this as well? Because I think a lot of times people, when they envision scouts, they think of the guys sitting behind the chain link fence in the stands at the high school games. A lot of times you're actually in the dugout with these kids. Well, it serves two purposes. And the, and the first and most important is being able to be on the field, seeing it from field level, being in the dugout, listening to how the players interact, watching them after they fail or succeed, uh, see how they uh, are receptive to instruction from myself or any of the other scouts in the dugout, seeing how they compete when it's tense. Uh, those are things that you can get a sense of in the stands, but really being in the dugout is a whole different lens. And I feel very fortunate again, to be a part of the area co-group with the Milwaukee Brewers. And I do anything and everything. Anytime there's an event in SoCal that allows the scouts to participate on the field, I throw my name in the hat and I try to keep myself in the best physical shape, especially my arm. So I can throw batting practice from the left side to a uh, high school or any amateur type of hitters. And then the second part, selfishly, is it, it allows me to be, feel young and feel active and stay involved in the game, not only just from uh, the stands, but on both sides of the fence. And uh, yeah, it's been invaluable. It's been extremely helpful when I've had to make some decisions on players being in the dugout and seeing how they, uh, seeing how their heart and their minds work. Absolutely. I know you did a great job of that. You signed a number of players who were high round picks and Corey Abbott was one of them. We're going to jump into the process of signing him after this quick break. And we're back with Tom Myers, area scout for the Chicago Cubs. Tom, you mentioned you've been scouting now for 10 years. You've signed a lot of players, including some who were drafted in the top couple rounds, Cole Roderer, Chase Strumpf, both second round picks, or Roderer's second round supplemental pick. And one of the players you scouted, who ended up being picked by the Cubs pretty highly, was Corey Abbott. He was a right-hander at Loyola Marymount. The Cubs selected him 67th overall in the 2017 draft. He was an interesting case because he had been around for a few years, but never really stood out. And then that junior year at LMU really took off through the first perfect game in school history. What did you see from Corey during that junior year and, and how familiar were you with him even before then? Well, you know what, there was a lot of things involved in um, getting Corey into our system 
as far as scouting wise. And, you know, that started with going into his junior year, he played on the Cape Cod for the Orleans Firebirds. So right there, uh, one of our scouts at the time um, was able to evaluate him and put in a follow report, which kind of initially rang the bell. And then I covered Loyola Marymount and uh, was able to see him in the fall and follow up and like the ingredients, uh, again, using your network correctly, but also listening to the words of the head coach at the time, uh, Jason Gill, who's now the head coach at USC. Jason prompted me on uh, Corey as far as his work ethic. Uh, I could see what he possessed physically on the mound and how he competed, but you know, Jason raved about him as a, a hard worker, determined, you know, you got to overlook some things maybe right now physically, but this guy is going to put in the work and is never going to give up. And sure enough, in that like six to eight month window from the fall to the spring, he started to transform his body. He improved his uh, arsenal with adding a slider, which he picked up on the Cape Cod in Orleans. And then um, kind of took off over time. It, it was you know, just a not a fast start out of the gates that spring. But again, he lit me up enough to start the process with our other scouts. And then our national cross checker came in, Ron Tostenson, and we were watching Corey pitch at Pepperdine. And there were like three scouts there that day. And he showed enough with his ingredients to get Ron excited. So again, we got the process rolling and more people started to come in. Steve McFarlane, our um, four corner scout in Arizona, saw him later in the spring. And this is when Corey hit full stride. Velocity started to improve. His command was very good. And then Matt Dory, our scouting director at the time, got to see him in the WCC tournament and he threw a no hitter. So again, I laid out the groundwork. Our other scouts got to see, uh, see him pitch, saw the things that I liked saw him again hitting full stride and that put Corey in a good spot for us to talk about him uh in the top part of the draft that year and sure enough the Cubs selected him and you know Jason Gill again talked about the kid's makeup and the kid hit the ground running in pro ball and has always been able to create swing and miss but I'll, I'll tell you this much seeing Corey or watching Corey this year in AAA take his lumps get up to the big leagues and take his lumps and how he finished at the AAA level. And then his last start against St. Louis again shows a lot about the kid's character and what he's about. And he's used this last year, at the higher, highest levels of baseball to learn his craft handle failure. And he's making strides in the right direction to hopefully make himself a bonafide big leaguer. Yeah. You mentioned, obviously you saw the physical skills progress over the course of the year. How many times did you meet and talk with him just to get a sense of that makeup for yourself? So that, that process is ongoing um, for me without giving up all the details of how I scout my guys uh, in my area. But generally, a phone conversation kicks it off to break the ice. Then you meet with the player one-on-one. Um, again, follow-up coaches uh, calls with the head coach, the pitching coach, just keeping tabs on the player physically making sure there's no uh, roadblocks with injuries and then listening to their words about his progression 
I saw him, I want to say three times in the fall. And then I want to say I saw him four to five times that spring in different games at different locations. I, I like to see the players at home because there's usually a, a comfort level when they pitch at home, but then I prefer to see them on the road and see how they pitch in maybe a potential hostile environment, but against, again, away from the creature comforts of being in their own dugout. And uh, was able to see Corey a few times that year to give me enough, again, confidence that when I talk to uh, our other scouts in our, in our uh, office, that, hey, we need to stay on top of this guy. I felt good about those words. Yeah, it's funny. I do a lot of our Southern California draft coverage here at VA. And I just remember starting out in the spring that year, Corey Abbott was a name on the list that was kind of far down. And it felt like every time I checked in with someone across the country, it was, hey, move Abbott up a little bit. Hey, move Abbott up a little bit. At first, he was kind of a 15 to 20 round guy. And then it was, hey, he might go top 10. And then, hey, he might go top five. And then all of a sudden, he might go first day. It just felt like the steady ascent the whole way through. And I ran him up pretty high and it still wasn't high enough. Well, and, and you know, it's a great story about uh, the scouting process and every team has these guys. And, you know, as us as scouts, you know, and yourself, you're watching players all year round and some of them stare you in the face all year long. And then there's those other guys that get you excited and you you're hoping that they progress and they take that next step. And it, it, it tells you also, do not give up on guys, especially like now in the fall. You're not seeing a final product. You're just seeing a skeleton of what they could be in spring. But use your resources well to gather more information, meet with the players, learn what they're about. Do they love the game? Are they hard workers? Do they like the weight room? All these other checkpoints that will give you even more confidence when you see him in the spring and go, okay, I did believe in this guy. And sure enough, he's taken that next step. For me, the first time I saw Corey in person, I didn't get a chance to see him in college that year. But after he was drafted by the Cubs, I did see him when he went out to pitch in Myrtle Beach. And it was definitely impressive to see what he'd become, spotting his fastball both sides of the plate, that slider both sides of the plate, really effective outing. The only guy that got a barrel on him, they were playing Bowie's Creek, was Abraham Toro, who's now in the majors as well. With Corey, as this progress transpired up through pro ball, how much were you keeping tabs on him? Because again, you're scouting a region, you have a couple different guys you've signed. How much were you watching this ascent early on, especially through high A and then when he led the Southern League in strikeouts in double A? It, it, it could be considered annoying for others, but <laughs> I watch all of their outings and we're very fortunate to get video uh, reports following their uh, gameplay. So I'm watching all of our guys studying throughout the season. And, you know, sometimes I need to check myself because I get, like I said before, I get a little um, anxiety seeing guys struggle because you want them always to perform well, but then you got you to sit back and go, hey, this is part of the process. They're going to fail. How do they um, take the step forward? Are they, again, listening to the coaches and making adjustments? And with Corey, you know, he's transformed his body. Physically now, he looks great. So his body's changed. His repertoire has gotten sharpened, or his arsenal has gotten sharper. He's added a changeup. And you know what's interesting about this, Kyle? His first outing in the big leagues this year, I want to say it was against the Giants. And 
Wilson Contreras is calling changeups early in the count. And in A ball and in double A, he rarely threw a changeup. When he got to triple A, he needed to start to throw up more to left-handers. Contreras was calling it against right-handers and lefties in his first outing. And I was like, whoa, here's this guy using his fourth best pitch against major league hitters. So he has really evolved. I think he's learning that he needs to pitch at the bottom and the top of the strike zone uh, to get major league hitters out. And uh, if that evolution continues, he's got a chance to be a back-end starter for the Chicago Cubs. And uh, like I said, I think uh, the way he's progressing, it's a very positive thing moving forward. You mentioned the excitement and, in your words, the anxiety sometimes. When did you first kind of get the sense, hey, this could be my first big leader? When did it kind of become more and more real that this could be the guy for you? Well, the way he went through the system and the success rate he had in high A and then in double A, he was crowned a minor league pitcher of the year. And again, you get to that prospect league and you're creating swing and miss with your secondary pitches. And at that time, he was throwing the fastball at the top of the zone and dominating those type of hitters. Uh, that was like a, a signal right there that uh, this young man has a chance. He was put on our 40 man. So all the things were lining up correctly for him. And then he got to AAA. And, you know, we're going through a transition right now and trying to reestablish our big league team. And he got an opportunity to get up there and uh, perform. And they brought him up several times. And he had some success here and there, but more failure. And again, the way he finished the year says a lot about the young man, says a lot about our development system, teaching him to handle failure and improve his stuff and improve his command and how to get major league hitters out. So again, uh, the anxiety is dissipated because <laughs> I'm beginning to believe that this guy has a chance to stay. Absolutely. I do want to go back to that first outing you mentioned. June 5th against the Giants in San Francisco came out through two scoreless innings. Did you go up to San Francisco to watch the game in person? Were you on watching TV? Where were you for that? Unfortunately, I was on the road at the time, and I think I was at an area code event. So I couldn't get away because uh, the priority was to be uh, there to evaluate next year's talent. But I made sure I got back to my hotel room and put it on. <laughs> on the computer and I watched him pitch and yeah, I was involved in on every pitch and pleased to see that he pitched in San Francisco, which was a, a nice pitcher's park to start, start out his career. And, uh, you know, he went after the guys and was aggressive. And again, here, here the giants are uh, in the postseason, So that was a good way for him to get a taste of the big leagues against a bonafide winning organization. His first major league hitter, Chadwick Trump, he gives up an infield single. Then he gets Kevin Gossman at the bottom of the order, gets his first strikeout. Were you living and dying on every pitch? Did you pump your fist when he got that first strikeout? What was it like for you? Yes, there was a lot of fist pumping going on, no doubt. And I, it was nice that he started off at, at the bottom of the order as well. You mentioned the struggles. He did go out his next few outings, got hit a little bit at the Padres, only got through an inning and a third, gave up three runs. A couple of other multi-inning outings where he gave up a couple hits, had a couple walks. For you, as you mentioned, just because you are so close to him, the high highs, were there also some low lows where at any point you were just, again, you care. And when you see him struggle, it hurts a little bit, I would imagine. Yeah. And, you know, again, you've got to trust the kid the fact that he's there and trust why he's there and how he was evaluated by all of our people that 
it's all part of the learning process. Now, I never pitched in the big leagues, but I got to play in the minor leagues, and I knew that every level you get to, there's a margin of error for everybody. He's got big league stuff. He's got weapons to get big league hitters out, but he's going to have to learn, like a lot of these guys, through failure that he can't just throw the ball down the middle. He can't leave it at the letters. Uh, and I think he's shown that now he can pitch down and up. Uh, you know, he pitches primarily with a lively four-seam fastball, but those guys don't miss mistakes. So he showed against – I was watching that last outing against St. Louis, and he made pitches against a very good St. Louis team. And Tyler O'Neill got him twice on heaters that he left over the middle and at the letters. And Tyler O'Neill has got unbelievable bat speed with power and made him pay. But Corey shrugged it off, and I think probably earlier in the year – that, you know, anxiety that, that all players have in competition uh, probably wore on him in those first early outings where in this last outing, the end of the year, he shrugged it off, got the next hitter, made better pitches, made adjustments. And I, again, I think that's all part of the process for guys uh, getting to the big leagues and being able to stay is to make those in-game adjustments. And, you know, from the scouting side, we're looking at the amateurs. We're looking at the same thing. It's just, they're not as refined. We want to see how they make in-game at-bat adjustments. Yeah, you mentioned that final start against St. Louis, uh, October 1st, on the road, five innings, four hits, two runs, best outing of his career so far. And first major league start goes out and has a good performance against a playoff-bound team like that. Certainly encouraging, and I'm sure a great feeling for you. You know, now that you've had that first big leaguer, is, is there, I don't know if relief is the right word, but you mentioned you've been doing this for a decade, and this is the goal for scouts is to get big leaguers. Getting that first one, is it just joy? Is there a sense of relief? What is it like for you? Well, I'll tell you this. Being a college coach, I ended up in my 10-plus years coaching, I had more major league players being in a coach's uniforms. So stepping into scouting initially, I thought, oh, well, this is going to be easy. You sign this guy, and he's going to you know, get to the big leagues within four years. It's tough. It's, it's a tough business. You know, you make recommendations. You hope for the best. And there's so many things in play, uh, injuries. Uh, lack of performance, maybe with an organization at the time that doesn't have room for the players. So, you know, uh, I tell guys this, I was told this as a former player that every time you take the field, you're playing for the other 29 teams. You do the best you can. You try to continue to improve your game. You have to work hard year round to do that. And uh, performance is going to allow you to keep progressing and staying healthy. So, you know, I have some guys that, that were drafted high the last couple of years and a few of them have gone through some injury hurdles. Uh, performance has also gotten in the way, but again, we took them at a, we took them at a high, you know, part of the draft for the reason that we think their makeup is, is going to allow them per, to persevere. And so, you know, uh, some guys have a, a long list of major leaguers. Uh, some guys have a very small list. So, I think every situation is different. I hope that the guys that I've recommended to the Cubs get to the big leagues and help the major league team win. That's the most important thing is that we're scouting to help the major league team be successful and play, <clears throat> excuse me, championship baseball. 
Absolutely. Well, Corey, uh, again, is a good start. Like you mentioned, had a really good finish to the season. And as the Cubs go through this transition period, figures to be part of their team for the next couple of years to come. And uh, again, just uh, a big accomplishment for you getting your first big leaguer. And just congratulations again. And thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story and the story of how you scouted Corey. Kyle, thanks for having me. This is uh, quite a treat and you do great work and keep it up. Awesome. Thank you, Tom. Once again, that was Tom Myers with the Chicago Cubs. Again, a really, really cool journey, really, really cool story. And Tom is someone who's become very prominent in the scouting community after a very, very prominent career as a coach. As we talked about, he's often one of the coaches for the area code games. He's at most showcases on the field coaching in the dugout. This year, he was rewarded with his first big leaguer in Corey Abbott. This has been another edition of the Baseball America Scout Series podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For Tom Myers, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.